Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's online community forums, offering peer support to nurses on a variety of topics, with information available at aacn.org forward slash online community. Now here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. Hi, everybody. This is Connie Barden. I'm here today to talk with Dr. Smith Hevner, or Smitty Hevner. Uh, Smitty is the Senior Scientific Director at the Critical Path Institute, or CPATH. Smitty, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Connie. I am so intrigued by your real job there at CPATH. <laughs> I am learning something about drug repurposing and you're in a collaboratory and that right there we could talk about for the next half hour. So what the heck do you do as a <laughs> PhD prepared nurse at CPATH with something fancy called drug repurposing? The Critical Path Institute is a nonprofit that's made up of consortia that uh, work in a pre-competitive space to help accelerate the approval and development of medications, uh, tests, biomarkers, uh, patient-reported outcomes, a wide range of um, treatments and interventions that go up for review by the FDA. My consortium is the Cure Drug Repurposing Collaboratory. As the name suggests, we focus on drug repurposing, and that is using drugs that have been approved for one indication in a new way. Um, a really common example that most of our list- your listeners will be familiar with would be Lyrica or Pregamblin. Um, it was developed, um, and originally the trials were around treating uh, fibromyalgia, and then de- over the course of, of studying that drug and getting ready to get it labeled, they noticed that patients that had diabetic foot neuropathy, their symptoms began to improve as well. And so the drug pregamblin or Lyrica was repurposed from specifically for fibromyalgia and expanded to include an indication on the label for diabetic foot neuropathy. There are lots of other indica- other examples around us all the time. You know, uh, there are lots of situations in which we need repurposed drugs, and it's either it's a, an emerging disease that's coming up very quickly, like remdesivir and COVID was actually developed for uh, uh, hemorrhagic viral illnesses um, and was repurposed to treat COVID. Some diseases are so rare or so poorly understood that it's hard to design a really well-controlled trial. Or there may be ethical issues, for example, for conditions affecting pregnant women or children. Um, And all of those kinds of situations prevent us from going through the normal mechanisms of multiple large randomized controlled trials to get a drug approved and um, on the market for, for that use. All of our uh, listeners, all of your listeners have used drugs off-label. The interesting thing is that clinicians are frequently not aware of that, and so that's part of what we 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 work on. But at our core, what we're we're doing is building infrastructure to leverage the data that's gathered in the electronic health record every day by nurses administering medications, providers prescribing medications off label, so that we can conduct observational research to either provide higher levels of evidence around the way drugs are used off-label, or support the development of hypotheses that can be tested formally in, in interventional trials like a randomized control trial. Well, you have just blown me away. I had no idea that nurses were doing this kind of work. I want to hear how you got there. So I really want to hear how the heck does somebody end up doing this kind of thing. But before we leave this, 
I think you're in a private public partnership because you interface with FDA and other governmental agencies, right? The CDRC, our, our collaboratory, is a public-private partnership with the Critical Path Institute and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the National Institute's National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. And what a public-private partnership is, is what it sounds like. It's, it's, we're an entity that exists outside of those government agencies but has a close relationship with them so that we can help um, coordinate and collaborate with a wider range of stakeholders than the FDA would be able to by themselves. Um, for example, some of the other work that's done across CPATH is we might have a group of pharmaceutical companies that are all working to bring new drugs to market around Alzheimer's. Um, and what CPATH does is helps develop the biomarkers or the measures that can be used across all of those trials. So we're not able to, you know, directly support a, spe a single specific agent that's being developed or looking to be repurposed by a, a specific pharmaceutical company, but we're able to pull all those stakeholders together in the pre-competitive space and leverage all of the resources together to build tools, to build resources, and to build techniques that can benefit all of the research being done to advance uh, treatment for patients in a given area. That is a beautiful explanation. I never even heard the term of a pre-competitive space, but it makes perfect sense in this context. Um, Okay, so how the heck does somebody get to be in a job like that? Because you are a nurse just like me and everybody else listening here. So tell us a little bit about that journey to get where you yeah. are. This could be a long story too, but I'll try to keep keep the short version. Okay. I, I did the stair step method. Um, I, I I graduated high school and I started working as a nursing assistant in a nursing home. Um, I always knew that I wanted to get an advanced degree, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so I just kind of stair stepped my way through. You know, I finished, I became an LPN, continued working, worked in doctor's offices. Then I got an associate's degree, passed my boards, became an RN. Um, and that's when I started thinking about um, uh, quality improvement and started getting interested in what are the, how can nurses be a part of changing the way we are practicing and providing the, the, our own care based on the evidence that's available to improve the care that we give to patients. Um, through the, all of that, I was working, I finished my bachelor's degree in a, a BSN completion program. And that's actually when I joined the American Association of Critical Care Nurses um, to get connected with other nurses who were interested in similar ideas. Um, at, I was transitioning from an inpatient med surge role to an emergency room position. And so get, getting access to a network where I was able to see where is the cutting edge evidence and connect with other nurses who were interested in trying to advance the practice of nursing became this impetus for me to really start thinking a lot more deeply about what it was I wanted to do with my career. Um, I ultimately, uh, I, I found a uh, an opportunity to get some graduate school credit. My health system had a collaboration with Clemson University to offer a graduate certificate in translational science. It's free grad school. And I thought, what the heck, why not? And I, I jumped in and then I started falling in love with the methodology there, something called evaluation science, which is instead of just looking at whether something works or doesn't, it's looking at how well it works or why it works in the specific way it does. I went on through that program finished my master's and matriculated into the PhD program. And I was had wrapped up my master's in April of 2020. Um, so right as, as COVID was really ramping up. 
I had moved into, I moved away from the bedside to a, uh, a research manager position where I was managing a program implementing routine screening for hepatitis C and HIV in the emergency department. And we were doing that through the EHR, leveraging different tools. And so COVID hit and my health system said, hey, Smitty, you, you know some things about research, you know some things about informatics, you're talking to critical care, infectious disease, can you help us with COVID? And so with a large team of people, we started pulling together resources and we built a local registry at, um, at the health system where I was, it was Prisma Health um, here in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, through that, I got connected to a larger, an, an international registry, the Society for Critical Care Medicine Discovery Network Virus COVID-19 Registry. Um, ended up being the site PI for Prisma Health on that registry as a master's prepared nurse and got exposed to a lot of other, other people working on similar ideas. And through that registry, we started talking about how could we shift from having to manually collect this data if, into a red cap form, a, a, an online survey form. How can we pull it more directly out of the EHR to be more efficient? Um, that work kind of took off, and we ended up applying for a large grant to the Department of Health and Human Services in partnership with the FDA. I was part of the team that built um, the work that we're doing, and so I was asked to come in and serve as the scientific director. Um, I then finished my PhD um, a couple months after transitioning to that role, um, and since then have been working on building and, and implementing tools to make it much easier to get data out of the electronic health record and shared in a de-identified format to support large-scale research. Well, you know, this podcast series is on leadership, and that is a magical journey from a CNA to a senior scientific director, PhD prepared uh, nurse. What, a, what an amazing career you've had. So as a leader, you're, you're doing all kinds of things and just paying attention to the opportunities and what makes your heart sing is what it, it sounds like to me. But I don't wanna leave the hospital arena because you certainly uh, got very involved in that. It sounds like leading research uh, during COVID. And we see a really varied layout, I would say, of nurse researchers in most hospitals. Some places have several, some places have none, and some places are kind of in the middle. Where do you think we are in hospitals with nursing research? I think we're in, in an area of incredible opportunity. Um, we have currently a model where nurses are either at the bedside or they're not, and I think that does an incredible disservice because in my experience, and particularly around looking at real-world data, getting the information out of EHR, having that intimate knowledge of how data is collected becomes so important for us to truly understand the limitations of that data, how it can be used appropriately, um, and how we can interpret it to, to get more meaning. What I am seeing across, across my networks, which I've been encouraged by, is more and more health systems investing in positions where nurses have a little bit more of a hybrid role, where we see instead of just having a, a re research nurse that is you know, executing um, a protocol developed by a pharmaceutical company, nurses are getting more and more engaged in developing their own research, um, in being part of evidence-based practice implementation, and helping to lead quality improvement efforts. 
And what we have is this amazing opportunity where we have this whole wealth of nurses that have a deep understanding of the systems in which they work, of the environments in which they work, and the types of patients they care for, but are also starting to grasp the, the higher level um, uh, thought processes that are necessary for research, which sometimes, unfortunately, we're not fully prepared for when we come out of a baccalaureate program. And so the really exciting thing is there's this swarm of nurses that are so eager for the information to know, how can I be more effective? How can I take what I see at the bedside and help make that information available to other nurses? How do I make sure that we are providing the absolute best quality care? How do we combat misinformation? How do we make sure that the, um, the, the equity in the care that's being delivered and in the research that's conducted can be elevated based on the nursing perspective, because nurses are uniquely positioned to see the whole patient and not focus on one disease or one stage of their recovery. It sounds like nurses are the perfect people to augment research efforts. Although I have to tell you, I'm going to poke at you a little bit here. Sometimes what I hear nurses say is, oh, I'm just here trying to take care of my patients. And here comes those researchers they want us to gather more data. Here's another protocol. And which protocol is this patient on? How do I keep up with all of this? Do you see that much in, well, maybe not in your work now, but when you're more in the hospital setting? Do you do you hear that much? Do you see that much as a challenge? I see that and hear that now in my current role. A big reason for, for the, the, there's a large shift going towards real world data specifically because of that reason, because they were trying to build ways to conduct research without putting so much additional work on the people actually delivering the care. You know, so can we embed the protocol in the EHR so that instead of a nurse having to keep track of each individual protocol, they're prompted to do the right thing according to the protocol for the, for the specific patient. And then instead of them having to fill out additional forms, let's leverage the documentation that nurse is already doing build metrics in to help improve the quality and processes to improve the quality of that documentation, rather than putting extra work on nurses, hiring additional staff to extract data. Um, we, we have this incredible technology all around us and we're not utilizing it to its full potential. My PhD in, eva in evaluation science, I, I focused heavily in a subset, a subspecialty called implementation science, which is all about how do I get a program launched? How do I get it embedded? How do I move this through the, the, the system that I'm working with, with minimal disruption and making it so that it can be accepted and adopted by all the stakeholders? And so what you're talking about is exactly what why we need nurses involved in research, because it's really easy for a team of physicians and PhDs and statisticians to design this beautiful, incredibly well-powered, well-designed study. But unless there is a bedside nurse part, that's part of that team, we lose sight of all of the extra pieces that are happening around that patient. And not only is that creating extra work for the nurse if we don't think about it, it's actually potentially creating um, a threat to validity of the research. Because mm -hmm. if we don't fully understand all of the things that could impact the care being delivered to the patient, we can't control for it in analysis and we can't, uh, we can't assess for it in our findings. And so we could end up with a trial that was looked beautiful on paper, but because they, we didn't talk to a bedside nurse about what was actually going on in this unit, the, the results may not mean what we think they mean. So this concept, I think you used the term real world data. Is that, mm -hmm. right? uh -huh. Is that kind of like getting good data, you get, being sure we have good and good and sound data? That's certainly part of it. Mm -hmm. um, real world data is 
what it sounds like. It's data from the real world. So instead of, you know, we have like phase one, two, three, and four trials when we think of like a pharmaceutical study. Those, these are very highly regimented environments in one, two, and three. In a stage four, we're looking at effectiveness instead of efficacy, and we're looking at what happens when a patient's actually being treated with this as part of their standard of care. Um, but real-world data is even going beyond that and saying, you know, I, you know, I have a question about um, the timing and dose of Pepsid for someone going into anaphylaxis, for yeah. example. Mm -hmm. This would be another repurposed agent that's being used off-label, but it's an H2 agonist, so we, we there's some reason to believe that it could be helpful. Um, and so a real-world study would pull the data of all the patients being treated for anaphylaxis in the ER that received Pepsid versus those that didn't. We'd use propensity score modeling or some other causal inference methodology to try to assess what's going on there. And then from that information, we could have findings that help us define a hypothesis for an interventional trial. Um, and that could be true of um, any, any number of other diseases. For example, um, arterial thrombosis. There are no medications labeled for arterial thrombosis. They're labeled for venous thrombosis, and they're used off-label for arterial. But a real-world study would let us look to see what's going on. It could establish several things. First, we could look to see, do we have equipoise, which is, is an ethical question of, is this the standard of care around this? Because if we don't have equipoise, we can't feasibly conduct a trial because people won't, won't buy into it. We could also look to see what are the patterns? Are there different doses that are being used by, for dexamethasone, for example? This is a big push for rural data on dexamethasone because we don't know when to initiate that drug. We don't know what dose. We don't know the timing. We don't know the duration. And so there's, there's five or six questions that need to be answered. And it would be insanely expensive to design a, a randomized controlled trial that would examine all of them. So instead, real-world data can help us explore what's happening out in real practice because we know there's heterogeneity, there's differences from provider to provider on how they use these medications. And so how can we leverage that information to understand what additional questions need to be asked? Or for a really rare disease, for example, can we use that real-world data as a historical control if we know there's a new treatment out and prior to a certain date, no one had it available? we can use that real-world data to get a better sense of the true effect of a medication. Wow. I'm just so gratified that people like you are, I, what feels like to me, behind the scenes looking for, for this kind of approach. And the other thing I'm gratified about is this concept of using real-world data. Not only will it improve research efforts, but it also gives us something to be happy about the EHR. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and that's that's a great point because the, the thing that we struggle with is that EHRs were designed for billing, right? And that's why that's why a lot of clinicians struggle with them because it doesn't per feel perfectly intuitive. But what we're shifting now to a world where we're realizing the wealth of data that's available there for us to understand not only what the care that can be delivered to, to patients, but the workload for nurses. You know, we could we could even use some of this data to understand how it is the, the workload for an individual nurse has exploded, potentially leading to burnout. How the system stresses create additional issues for all the caregivers involved. Yeah. Yeah, Smitty, I know that you, besides doing this amazing work, you're also you have some faculty appointments here and there. What are you doing in your faculty roles? 
So I have two faculty appointments. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at Clemson University in the Department of Public Health Sciences and at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville in the Department of Biomedical Sciences. At the medical school, I, I mentor medical students and teach them research and I do um, every now and then I do a course for the, the younger medical students about how not, pardon my French, but I call it how not to piss off your nurse um, and talk through, you know, just how to navigate the environment, how to take advantage of the expertise that nurses have um, and trying to build a better relationship with the next generation of physicians between with nurses. And at, at Clemson in public health, I teach a, a course in our graduate school on evaluation science. Um, so I teach all of our master's and PhD students um, the, the, the methodology that I use. Well, I would ask you, uh, that sounds like an incredibly full plate. I would ask you what you do in your spare time, but it doesn't really sound like you have much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have enough. We have a new border collie. Uh, so that's that takes up a lot of energy. Um, yeah. And then uh, the rest of my free time is usually devoted to plants. I'm a bit of a, of a, a plant hoarder. I've got okay. uh, 53 plants in my house right now. Wow. Well, good luck with a border collie puppy and plant. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that works out. Let me ask you, interesting that you're working with um, growing up some great medical students to become physicians. That makes me think of the team that's required for doing research. Mm -hmm. What do you tell nurses you see as uh, optimal characteristics of a research team or how to be a good member of a research team? Mm -hmm. like yeah, so the most important attribute in a researcher, in any member of a research team, is not having answers. It's being able to ask questions. And in order to be able to ask a good question, someone has to be able to take a step back from where they are. The reality is that none of us as humans are good at seeing our own blind spots. So a really high-powered, high-impact, highly desirable research team is diverse from uh, professional perspectives, from education levels, but also as far as gender, race, ethnicity, economic background, because those different perspectives become extremely important for us to make sure we des don't design research that furthers the biases that have become ingrained in healthcare. And what I have found in the course of my career, you have a team of highly educated people, you've got statisticians, you've got doctorally prepared um, nurses or other, other professionals, physicians that have these great designs and these great ideas about the mechanisms of action for an intervention or a medication. What really moves a project forward more often than not is a learner. So whether that's a, a young physician, a, a student of some kind, a nurse who's trying to move into the research realm, asking a question. And it's when they ask that question that people like me and people more with more experience than me suddenly start rethinking all of the assumptions we've made about the problem. At CDRC, I've got a, a team of postdocs that I work with, and I, I tell them, we, have a, we actually have a forum um, every couple of weeks where we all meet, and I tell them, give me all of your questions. Because those, those are the times that we start to say, okay, here's a problem that we need to solve. Here's an opportunity to communicate better to our stakeholders. Or here's a research question that we can publish on. Here's something that could actually be a grant. Here's something that could be fundable. And so when I'm working with any level of individual, I, I always create an environment for them to ask questions because that's the most important 
contribution that a learner, that someone who's new to research can make is just ask a question. Why are we doing it this way? What does it mean when we say we're using logistic regression instead of linear regression? Because if I have to stop and explain you know, a, a methodological concept, I have to stop and think about why I use why we're using those methods, and I have to think about them differently to explain them to a nurse or a, a young physician or a student than I would to explain them to one of my my colleagues that I've that's been a, P, a PI on the grant for fifteen years. The nurse in the team is is the one who can ask the questions about. Will you say you want to measure X? You say you you want height and weight but you're, you're looking in the emergency department. And as an ER nurse, I know that, that sometimes we don't have a chance to really put a patient on a scale. Sometimes it's a bed scale. It's not calibrated correctly. We're guessing at their height, um, especially if it's a traumatic situation. And someone who doesn't work in that clinical space is not going to have that inside information to understand the limitation of that data set. And the nurse being there to ask the question of, are you sure, or why are we using it this way? Because I don't know that that data is all that useful, makes us reframe the research and we end up with a stronger product at the end. So if you have a good solid team that listens, then these questions that nurses ask are really a gift to mm -hmm. the um, integrity, I would say, of a study. Absolutely. Because you could be Absolutely. essentially bad data. Exactly right. I mean, how many, we always estimate height. And you ask the patient the weight, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to say if somebody asks me how much I weigh, right? <laughs> the number I like, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. So that's a whole reframe for me on nurses who are being involved in research, being willing to ask questions because they mm -hmm. bring the real world viewpoint. Uh, if, we, if we focus for a second on critical care research, whether it's nursing research, research in general, and so forth, what are some things... Um, today that we need to particularly keep in mind? I know inclusion, diversity, all of that is top of list for everyone. What does that really mean in mm -hmm. the design of a research study? Things we should be on the lookout for. The example that I always go over with my students is um, GFR. We, all of us were trained with this, um, this formula to adjust a GFR in African-Americans. We now know that that doesn't mean anything, that there, there isn't actually a reason um, to, to adjust that or the, the original evidence that we had to, to start doing that wasn't as solid as a lot of us were taught to think it was. And the things that we really need to focus on in critical care are really breaking down all of the biases that have been built into healthcare. We, we, we know as humans, we have biases. We also know the traditions of, and the, the history of the Western world have not been great <laughs> um, to, in, in many regards, but there's this incredible opportunity as we get access to more and more data to design studies to check these things, you know, to look at what is what is the actual intersection in hypertension in African Americans? We there's some reason to believe that there is some genetic component. But it's not like what I was taught in school, where it's African Americans have a genetically higher predisposition. They have a different response to some medications, but we know there's social economic factors that drive blood pressure up in African Americans. When we look at the care delivered in the ICU or in the emergency department, there's really strong evidence that says that there that shows that there's a disparity in how we assess and treat pain based on racial and ethnic factors. Um, we know that women, um, their pain tends to be undertreated. And these are really incredible 
incredibly important issues in the critical care space. These patients are in extreme pain. Their, their, their ability to communicate or to advocate for themselves is severely limited. And this is an incredible opportunity for nurses to step up and say, we are the ones delivering this care. Let us be a part of figuring out how to make this better. And that may be an evidence-based practice implementation project where we look at published guidelines from the AACN or SCCM and work to implement them in the ICU, for example, ICU liberation bundles. It may be a quality improvement project where a group of nurses on a unit decide we want to figure out how can we better assess patients' pain across their stay here and working with, with senior researchers or an evaluator to design a process to re-educate nurses on how to, how to manage it and how to document and appropriately build quality metrics in. Or we could be looking at a higher level, you know, more of a capital R research where we actually involve physicians and talk about the prescribing patterns. But at the core, nurses are the ones that understand all more of the systems that are part of that. And nurses are the ones that can help us design the measures to really assess the equity of the care that's being delivered in these spaces. And pain and uh, renal function are you know, fairly well-known examples at this point, but there's emerging research around all kinds of other fields that shows that we are not as standardized in our practice as we think we are or as we would like to be. And every one of those creates an opportunity. And so in critical care, I every time I get an article, and if anyone's had a research professor, you've heard this before, I always go to the what's next section, the conclusions. Where do we go from here? Because that's where you start to understand the hypotheses for the next research or the evaluation questions or the evidence-based practice initiative that can be drawn from that, from that piece of research. And so as we build this environment where critical care nurses have more training and are empowered to go out and find and interpret this research for themselves, we create this environment where nurses are part of creating the solution instead of, you know, being along for the ride. You know what? I, I got to tell you, Smitty, I think you could make anybody excited about research. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm just sitting here listening to you. I imagine a lot of people are too thinking, wow, would I love to do what that guy does? And, and yet here I sit, Maybe I'm a, a, a newish nurse. I'm looking at the trajectory of my career. I don't have my PhD. That sounds kind of daunting and so forth. What if someone's listening to you thinking, um, I would love to one day do something like that, but how the heck would I ever get started to uh, end up in a, an exciting space like that? Do you have any advice you would give people on that? Absolutely. It all starts with mentors. Um, when I got into the quality improvement realm, there was a, a senior nurse, an old battle axe of the hospital. She, she had been at that health system for 30 years, Sue Bethel. Um, and she was a, uh, she had a master's, she was a master's prepared nurse and had become the research manager for the whole health system. And getting close to her and getting education from her, guides from her on how I can position myself to be a, an effective part of the team helped me start exploring what exactly it was that I wanted to do. And not everyone needs a PhD. You only need a PhD if you want to be generating new knowledge. I, you know, so I want to I want to be part of conducting randomized interventional trials, really highly controlled observational trials, because I want to generate evidence that can be generalized, can be made, um, can be applied to groups other than the group I studied. 
unless that's really what you want to do, you don't need a PhD because that's the kind of work where you need to have access to, you know, high level uh, federal funding, but you can have a doctor of nursing practice, which trains you to apply the highest level of evidence available to your practice and be a part of, of lowercase research, capital R research, evidence-based practice, quality improvement, all of that. But even as a bachelor's prepared nurse, there's a role as an LPN, as a CNA, there is a role for, the, for those people in research where they are. You know, so finding research teams that are working on things that you're interested in, asking, can I be a part of this? When we go into research, we have to recognize that we end up doing some work for free. Um, it's not until pretty late in your career that you really get to dedicate your time to research. I mean, it really isn't until this current position that I have that my work is dedicated to research my 40 hours a week. Before that, it's a lot of nights and weekends. But you can, with a few hours, be part of you know building a uh, a protocol to um, look at different aspects of the health system. One of the earliest research projects that I did um, was interviewing uh, patient sitters and looking at how they perceived sitting with patients that were high risk, whether that was because of a mental health issue or because they were suicidal or because they were medically fragile and confused or um, you know, some other reason that required them to have that one-on-one -on -one observation. I was part of design, helping to design the, the questionnaires. I helped with interviewing and helped with analysis. And that didn't require a doctorate, but that still became information that could be generalized to look at how the hospital and the larger ecosystem was interacting with these patients. You know, this was, I'm sure a lot of people have, have those memories of the early 2010s when we suddenly had the video cameras popping up everywhere. It was, it was research around that. And so I was able to be part of that research team without formal research training because I asked and because I, I was willing to be a part of a team and, and build those relationships. I've been part of a lot of projects where it's the CNA or a patient that has no formal training or no education beyond high school that is a very essential part of the research team. And there's very there are specific research models for needing those people at the tables, things called collaborative participatory research. Anyone listening that wants to get into research, I would tell you, find a mentor that you feel comfortable with, that you feel safe with, that you find affirming, and ask them to let you attend join meetings, listen, ask questions, and try to think about where is it that you want to be a part of the research team? Do you want to be the one out there in front developing the questions, you know, writing all the budgets, writing all the papers, going to conferences? If so, maybe you need to think about a doctorate. If you want to be the one implementing the protocol, if you want to be the one collecting the data, if you want to be helping to make sure we followed and did what we said we would do, make sure we have high fidelity, Bachelors prepared is is plenty, plenty for that for that kind of work. But even if you don't want to get a bachelor's degree, there's still a role. There's still a need. There's uh, patient engagement um, research, for example, is popping up all over the place. And there's a major need for caregivers who don't have the higher academic training to offer their perspective as part of a research team to make sure we fully understand everything that's happening. Dr. Smitty Hebner. I can't thank you enough for somehow or other finding time to chat today. This has been the most instructive half hour I think I've spent in, in, in recent time. And I think I'm going to summarize by saying I'm so happy now to know a real world scientist 
looking for real world answers to real world questions. And that's that's exactly who I think you are for us. I think the profession of nursing really owes you a debt of gratitude for translating what you do into such usable and exciting terms. So Smitty, thank you so much for joining us. It's just been a gift to talk to you today. Thank you, Connie. It's been wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's online community forums with information available at aacn.org forward slash online community. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.